Have you ever done a road trip with a friend? There's always something standard. Deep, open-hearted conversations, good music, and of course some occasional annoyances with each other. And there's the inevitable adventure or calamity that really defines the road trip. Jesse and PJ are two friends. On the surface, they are doing one of the most cliche and normal things to do in the summer, which is go on a road trip. However, there's a whole other reality to them as they travel on their way through the country. Something happens at a routine gas stop that changes things forever. Percy, Percy Ross, um, called PJ. We had taken a trip down to Miami. And went from Miami to New Orleans and coming back through uh, Mississippi, Alabama, somewhere, stopped to get some gas. I understand, ma'am, we got hash, we got boy, got pot in the trunk, in the back seat. We stopped at this little mom-pop store, man. Hash is a mixture of marijuana laced with opium, right? You see, and uh, boy, boy was what we call a heron at that time. I think sometimes now people call it boy now. The girl was the cocaine, you know. And so, like, so, like, man, we come back and uh, we stop at a little store, and and a little woman in the store, man, and just, so me and PJ go in the store, right? And, and just, it's just opportunity, man. When you, you're a criminal, you're criminal mind, right? You don't look for stuff, but if opportunity there, you recognize a new track. So while we're there, we decide to rob the store, right? So we get the gas, go and pay for the gas, go inside the place, right? Or rob the store, come out of the store. All you could hear was something like a cannon going on. Right? This one was standing up in the in the door with something, must have been like a Coke 44 or something, right? And she just popping off rounds, man. You know, we jump in the car, back out, right? Don't stop. Get back on 20, coming, you know, coming west, coming east, right? Come on through Atlanta, come up, man. Stop in Columbia. Right, then come on to Fayetteville. And when I get to Fayetteville, uh, uh, drop PJ off on Mercer Road, and I was coming back, and uh, the uh, city police stopped me. And uh, he knew me, and uh, he like, uh, where's PJ, right? Uh, man, I don't know who he is, you know, and stuff. Well, he be riding with you, you know what I mean? And, and uh, the way you need bullet holes in the car. And I didn't even know the bullet holes was in the car, across the front of the hood of the car, man. You know, and so that was that morning. That evening, I, I had gone in I, in my house. I had uh, uh, two trailers, a Sleepy Hollow trailer court. I had one in the front where I had guys with walkie-talkies on, and one in the back that I, you know, sold drugs out of. That they would let me know it was one way in and one way out of Sleepy Hollow. So if law enforcement came in, that's the way they had to come in. You see what I'm saying? And so the guys at the front with the walk and talk would let us know that when law enforcement was coming down in the community, you know, so we would get things out the house, you know. And so, like, man, this day I just had come back in, like I said, the road trip. And when I would come in off the road trip, I would pop me two quaaludes, you know, to lose and, and get in the bathtub, you know, just soak and just come down, you know, off my trip, right? And, man, look here. I'm in the bathtub, man, I'm going to kick my dose in, bro. Just like that, as he's attempting to slow down from living the fast life, things go faster than they've ever gone. Jesse was taken into police custody for the robbery, and because he was known by the police as a neighborhood drug dealer, a rack of other crimes. Along the way, he was asked to identify and snitch on others. How much time did all of that accumulate to in terms of years? How much time were you looking at? A life sentence. 80 years, five years, and one year for escape. And what charges were they bringing against you? Well, trafficking, armed robbery, kidnap, um, 
uh, a felon with a weapon, um, conspiracy, oh, hell, and all kinds of shit, man, you know. They essentially threw the book at you. Jesse Gardner has been living on the rails of society. He's been the kind of guy that does a lot to get by, and because of that, he's going to attract a lot of attention from others around him, from law enforcement, from society in general. But Jesse also seems unable to resist himself and his choices. He may know that the things he's doing are wrong, but he also feels like they're the only choices he has to make just to survive. You've probably seen a Jesse in your life. Maybe you've even called the police on someone like him. And when folks like Jesse get caught up in their choices in the system, the underground life that they lead they were all oblivious to gets laid bare. This is Jesse's story today about how he's navigating the world of drugs, crime, imprisonment, pain, and even redemption. The drug war has been a renewed conversation in the mainstream with discussions focused on how white people in particular are caught in the crosshairs of the opioid crisis. But it also reflects what happens in America that in times of limited workforce options, education attainment, and choices, people like Jesse live a desperate life of trying to get by, willing to take a chance that could ruin it all at any given moment. When Jesse went to prison, he settled in with the same mentality he had had since he was young, that he was going to hustle and make his way out of there. I wanted to know what were the first days in prison like for him and how he eventually set up his drug shop behind bars. He explained his thought process and eventually tells me about a woman named Charlene. And, and, and uh, me and Charlene, we used to test each other, right? We, we like, and, and uh, if you think you all this, you know what I mean? Go out and get me $500 right quick in an hour or whatever, you know, come on back with it, you know, like that, you know? Uh, at least she would stick me on one of her girlfriends, you know, you know what I mean? And, you know, I want to have money and something, you know, let's see what we can do. You think you all this, all that, right? You know? And so we would, we would trick each other, test each other, you know, see how strong we really were. And so, like, I knew what Charlene could do. And uh, so you you be in prison and you see these guards, man, and and they be trying to act all smooth and cool and stuff. And, and, and you know, they um, working dead-end jobs. They really making no money. And and uh, so you connect them to Charlene, you know, and have Charlene, you know what I mean, to hook them up, you know what I mean, and that thing, you know, you got them hooked up, right? Like, Look, good man, I need a quarter pound. You know, or, you know, I need an ounce of weed or, you know, an ounce of blow, an ounce of boy. You know, I need to do this for me. Now, I understand. I'm not asking you to do this for me for free. You know, whatever that thing costs, right, I'm going to give you that for your pocket. You see what I'm saying? So you, you got know? into so a you, bartering system with yeah. the, the employees of the prison. I was what they call a lifer. I wasn't in there to create problems. You know, contrary to that, the officers, the warden would come to me and say, hey, Donald, we're putting this inmate down in your building today because he's been breaking in people's locker. You know, we want you to straighten them out. You see what I'm saying? Because they knew that if he was in my area, if he was in, 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 in my dorm, right, ain't none of that shit going to happen. You know, because I didn't want the search team coming tearing my stuff up. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah, you control the environment, man. You control the setting. And, and, and then take me into the moment where you're deciding to actually concoct a plan to escape because I'm wondering how do you escape from a prison? Jesse had found a way to make his prison sentence easier on him, but that didn't mean that he expected to serve the entire time. Jesse's street sense taught him to keep a lookout for an opportunity to move. Jesse vowed that he wouldn't serve a life sentence, but how would he escape? Listen, man, uh, from day one, Day one, when when the judge says, you know, we're gonna give you a life sentence, we're gonna give you eighty years, we'll give you five years, we'll give you one year. In my mind, it's like this: ain't no damn judge in the world gonna give a person that kind of time, and especially me. My name's Jesse Garner, you know. And so, when he tells me this, I'm like. Give me my time so I can go into prison. You see? So I know, I know that 
you know, I'm not staying in prison. You see, so it's not that I concoct a plan to escape. It's just that that that, that when opportunity presented itself, I took it. And every day, every day, even as I got the time, every day, I'm telling myself, I'm going home today. Now, I didn't walk around looking at the fence. You know, I didn't dig no tunnels and all that or plan nothing right. But if they let their guard down, you know, if they would blink their damn eye or do something, do something out of the ordinary, such as, you know, if they would come down, right, to walk and wake us up at 430 every morning, have us stand outside the door, right, and, and, and lock the cell. Right, but they would they would do that one morning and didn't lock the cell, right? That was out of the ordinary. You understand what I'm saying? And if they did that, that provided me with an opportunity. That tells me that somebody has lost their focus. You see, somebody's slipping. You see, so what you do, you 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 set a plan in motion, man, of where you're gonna be consistent. You're gonna do the same thing every day, where they know you. Garner is gonna do this, and this is what Garner is going to do. But at the same time, Garner is building a plan, building a, a door. That's where he, you know, he knows that the trust is going to be there. And when they, when they begin to trust you, they don't let the guard down. Then his day finally comes for him to escape. Well, I, it was it was on Saturday the first time on Saturday, and uh, um, the second time it was on Saturday, and uh, um, my mom, my mom had uh, gone to the hospital. She I had talked to her on the phone. The guard was standing there while I'm talking on the phone. And um, and she had gone to the hospital to have her spleen removed, and um, uh, I didn't know a person could live without the spleen, and uh, I was in uh, uh in, in Georgia, and uh, and I told mom just like this. She was in High Smith Memorial, High Smith Rainy Hospital up here in Fayetteville, and and uh, I told her I'll see you after a while, and uh, when he put me back in my cell, I. Let me stay out, man. The day is on Saturday. Let me stay out and play with poker with the guys. And, and when he did, right? And that was like first time ever for me. And uh, I had one of the guys that was trustees that old jailer would let him have, man, uh, 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 a pint of liquor working on the man hall farm, you know, I asked him for a pair of pliers and a, and a, and a boxed-in wrench. And I hit the fence. And uh, hit the fence and went down to uh, uh, what they call the auto parts store. Got me in about a two-foot screwdriver. And uh, come out of the store, man. And this guy, he knows the people clothes and stuff. He knows on escape. They give me a ride. Hey, bro, you want a ride? I'm like, yeah. And uh, where you want to go? I said, take me to the shopping mall. Take me to the shopping mall, man. And I and I snatched the car. So a random stranger sees you, knows you're an escape. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got the clothes on. Yeah. And drives yeah. you to a mall. Yeah, a shopping store, a food, a grocery, a grocery store. Yep. And uh, so uh, I'm looking for a car to lift, and I see this little car. Well, I, what they call his name, Iraq Camaria, Iraq Camaria. It was sitting out by itself in the parking lot. Busted in it, busted ignition, hit it up straight wide, hot wide, man. Coming on up uh, 20, coming 95. And uh, looked in the back seat, man, there was a cooler sitting in the back seat, bro. A cooler full of Bud Light. <laughs> Jesse had made his break in almost an obscure way, and it seems like his good nature, despite his means, has gotten him free. Now that he's in the lamb, Jesse almost adorably is on a hardwired mission to see his mom. In a lot of ways, it's per usual for escaped inmates. When most escape jail, they're most commonly found in the places or with the people they're most familiar with. When you spend time in isolation and amongst strangers, it's pretty understandable that as a result, you seek out places that feel familiar and safe. For Jesse, for a lot of reasons, this means finding his mom. 
I stopped in Columbia, South Carolina. No, I stopped in Atlanta, changed clothes, right? Stopped in Atlanta, changed clothes, get a gun. Then I come to Columbia, see some of the people that I used to fly there, get some drugs, and hang out that Saturday, that Saturday night, and come on up to Fairview that Sunday morning. And Fairview that Sunday morning, go over to a Cape Fear Court over Wilmington Road, and see a guy get two quarter spoons of a boy. I shoot one, stick one in my pocket, go up to the hospital, see my mom. And uh, I go up there, man, she got all the church people in there, right? Preaching everybody, right? I'm like, y'all get out of here. I want to talk to my mama, man. Jesse had kicked out the sinks to get time with his mom. It had been years since he had seen his mom at the time. We discussed the first talk he had with her and when she realized he'd escaped from prison. Oh, man, let me see. Eight, seven. Oh, man. Um, 80 to 83, the first time was 82 and 83. So this is like four years, four or five years, four years. And, uh, um, but man, we have this conversation. She sit, she's sitting straight up in the bed, man. And uh, she says this, and this is the way my little warped mind received all this. She said, okay, go on where you're going and be careful. So that's like she's giving me her blessings while I'm on escape, you know? And uh, that was it. And man, that was like uh, like the last time, man, that I touched my mom. She died in 1991. After speaking on his mom, Jesse's mood changes. A story that almost had fun reflection has now turned somber. Now he's still on the run. So my question is, what will he do next? I go to Washington, D.C., man. They had um, Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagel fight. Leave DC, my family there. Go to Jersey, get another car. Go to Boston. Leave Boston and uh, go out to my people house out in Toledo, man. Go out there, hit 90, go west. And uh, Toledo, Ohio, and uh, got busted on the turnpike. Didn't know anything about crack. But my girl had me drive this hooker to Sandusky, you know, from Toledo to Sandusky. I think it was about like 30 miles, man, something like that. And and, uh, we stopped on the turnpike. And uh, I go in this turnpike plaza. I go in the bathroom. You know how you see all these... uh, Dark blue coverall uniform, you know, it's like security and stuff, right? Yeah. And yeah, so that's my thought process. That's what they are. And uh, uh, I was driving a, uh, a blue T top Trans Am I had stolen in New Jersey. And um, I come out of the bathroom, this hooker, she had come out of Colorado Springs and she had tricked this man out of 10 grand, man. She had all fifty dollars bills, you know, and I was sitting up. I was going to go get her, you know what I mean? I was playing stuff with her. And uh, she told me her man was in prison and this and that, and she had to show me his driver's license and all that. So I'm coming back out of the bathroom. She's standing at the cash register, ordering with this woman, making a scene, called a woman will not take a $50 bill to give her a change to make her let her pay for a 35 cent bag of fresh popcorn. They put the fresh popcorn in little brown bags, right? 35 cents. She's standing there arguing with this woman making this scene, right? And so and and so all of this stuff is going on, man. I see all these securities and stuff, right? So I go in my pocket, get a change, come on, pull out the car, and we're at a turnpike plaza. I see, you know, you know, you see little cars and law enforcement stuff, but you like, they just taking a break. You know what I mean? They ain't watching me. I get in the car, man, you know, you ready to back out the car? You like them jokes came from everywhere, man. Get out the car, get out the car. Put your hands on the top of her head and all this. And, and she throws some stuff in the floor of the car. Like I said, I never knew what crack was because like we didn't do crack. You know, we didn't know anything about it at that point. I didn't. And uh, so, Right, we get out the car, man. I'm joking. 
take me down to Sandusky County Jail, and I tell them my name is John Garner, my brother. <laughs> because my brother never been inside of a police car. I tell them I was born December the 5th, 1953. And I'm joking, get ready, let me go, man. Let me, I call Mary, my girl, let's go. $1,500 bond. I was bringing them, they bring me downstairs, right? Let me go. Mary was at the stairs, bottom stairs, waiting on me. Before we go on, it's important to note here that Jesse, at the time, clearly struggles to see some of his own responsibility in getting caught up. It's been easier to tell himself a story that all of this unravels somehow because of this sex worker. Some of how he puts it on her is a reflection of the way that these women get reduced, dismissed, and discharged of their own humanity all the time. At this moment, we wanted Jesse to be able to tell the story he wanted and needed to tell. Trying to socially correct or adjust him wasn't quite the mission here in this conversation, but it's still important for our listeners to understand how common it is to both socially and in our criminal justice system to find ways of scapegoating women who are seen as being illegal or disempowered to advocate for themselves in a lot of these situations. So even though they had arrested you for this incident, they hadn't made the connection to who you really were, that there's a warrant out for your arrest. So now Jesse has been arrested and taken in, but because he claimed he was his brother, the authorities had not made a connection to who he was. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so like, I'm coming downstairs, man, get ready to make bail. This old jailer said, uh-uh, you can take him back upstairs. His name Jesse Garner. He's fugitive from Georgia. I'm like, so sick, man. Oh, my God. So, yep, that was that, man. Jesse was taken back in, and it wasn't soon that he got back out. By now, Jesse had accumulated life, plus five, plus one. He was in full custody of the state of Georgia. Now that he was in for the long haul, he realized that he had to change his life. He got tired and gave his life over to God. I had, I had given my life to the Lord. I got saved in, in 95, right? And, uh, and, and I, didn't, I didn't get saved, right, uh, to get out of prison or nothing like that. I would just usually get to a place, I don't know if you ever experienced it, but yeah, people talk about it and everything, right? And you just get tired, man. You know, you just get tired. And in your tiredness, you gave your life to God? Yeah, man. I'm like, you know, if you real, you know, deal with this because I can't no more, you know? What was the thing you couldn't deal with? Just everyday prison life, man. You know? It's stressful, hectic, man. You know what I mean? You know, trying to book the system, trying to, you know, stay high and be normal. You know, at the same time, you know. And uh, I just wanted some peace, man. You know, and that's what he gave me. Straight up, man. I I used to hear people say that, you know, when you get saved, it's like this burden lifts up off of you, right? Right. And I and I swear, man, I'm telling you straight up. That's exactly what happened. Things changed for Jesse in early 1999. By this point, he had gone up for parole and been denied. But in April of 1999, he was called to the fence and asked for his address. Not knowing what the situation was, he gave them the address of the prison. But when he realized they were asking for a good reason, he gave them his sister's address. And by that December 1999, in fact, his brother's birthday, Jesse was free. Although he was free and on parole, Jesse soon realized things are not easy for returning citizens. The system has been made to set apart those who have been deemed criminals and therefore not deserving of basic needs of humanity. See, it was a requirement that he get a job and stay out of trouble. But how do you do that when you have to check the box that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony and no one will ever hire you? Jesse told me firsthand how he realized the system's trap. Well, because you, you, you come back, man, and, and you figure, okay, I've done my time. 
and they tell you, right? You got they tell you, you gotta get a job. You you come out of town, you come out of prison, and they say, okay, they give you you own, in North Carolina, you got you get parole. There's a fee that you have to pay every month. All right, it's thirty or forty dollars. Okay, but you got to get a job. You got to get a job, and you got this felony, and ain't nobody gonna hire you. But you got to pay this fee, and I ain't got no job. If I don't pay the fee, you're gonna revoke my parole and lock me back up. And see, this is the system. So what you, yeah, go ahead. The systemic, go ahead. The, the systemic stuff. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's these policies, man. And they tell you, oh, when you do your time, you're all right. But no, you don't never stop serving your time, bro. All I'm saying is this: is that when you place put a person in a position, if you put an animal in a cage and he's used to being free, he's going to do what he needs to do to become free. If you're not going to give him meat to supply his needs and he's hungry, he's going to do what he needs to do to eat. See? And so whenever you tell these guys, right, well, you <laughs> You you gotta pay and, and the brothers they they they're serious, man. I see them every day. Let I me mean, let me tell you something, man. I signed up two brothers today, right? One that did six years, one that did like nine or something, right? I I personally today, personally, they came home last month, both of them came home in July. I personally put them in my car, took them to Fairville Tech Community College, paid for their courses for welding technology and electrical wiring. The brothers, if you see them, they dread it up, looking all hard and stuff. Brothers started crying. Yeah. You understand? Somebody really trying to help us, man. You're really trying to help us. And, and I told them, I said, what I'm, what I'm going to do, I'm going to surround you for success, but you got to walk it out. When you're actually setting up the ability to have crimes of poverty, when the basic needs of people are not met, and their chances are sur of survival actually depend on them actually going out and creating a way for themselves and food on the table and money to pay bills when they, when they don't. And I think the, what I really hear you saying in this moment is the penalty of life, especially when you are poor, when you are a black person, when you are a brown person, is this life and the system requires that you pay more than that system allows you to earn. What Jesse is explaining to us is that the system has created this wave of crimes of poverty, things that people have to do just to make their lives livable. Basic needs are not met and their chances of survival depend on them getting out and putting food on the table and getting money for the bills. And therefore, you gotta do what you gotta do. For black and brown people, the system requires that you pay more than the system allows you to earn, and the cycle begins there. Most people who haven't directly or indirectly experienced the criminal justice system have a fairly simple perception of how the system works. They think someone commits a crime, gets caught, gets sentenced, does some time and then returns to society. But we often forget that there's still an ingrained bias against people that have served time. And as we listen to Jesse's story, we're reminded of how often and easily people who have served time are immediately barred from jobs, housing, and even their own community. It can even be hard just to get volunteer work. And those sort of limitations coupled with the legal system keeping tabs on you via parole and fines both of which can incur penalties that can result in further jail time when violated, means that many returning citizens don't get a fair shake at starting over. So even for simple crimes, citizens will find themselves trapped in a cycle that never feels like they can fully repay the debt they've created. It's no surprise that many of them do like Jesse, 
return to the life that got them there to begin with. Jesse and I continue to talk about these systemic entrapments and what he does to change the tides. When a person is released from prison, they come out with the expectation um, that they've done their time, they're going to get a job, you know, and get back, you know, this life back together and everything is going to work for them. Reentry starts the moment a person becomes incarcerated. So, me, what I do, I have connections to the DPS Department of Public Safety, and I have them to let me know when a person is six months up time-wise to come back into our community. And I try to go into that system and begin to establish a relationship with them to see what, where, you know, what, what they're facing, where they're coming up short, what they need, you know, and to try to supply that and have them some type of foundation when they walk out. It don't always work that way. You know, uh, I got a call today from, from Hornet County Prison, Julie Michaels, and she's like, Jesse, this guy told you he was coming home in January. He'll be home the end of August. Okay, this is August 14th. You see? And he needs stuff, stuff, stuff. His family's dead. You know what I mean? He got no place to go. Could you come do an assessment, a phone test, whatever you need to try to surround him with resources? All right, so this guy comes out. Everybody that comes into the office, the first thing they say, I need a job. So one, they're not job ready. You know, they they went they, they went to prison, right? Not out of everybody, not everybody. They they went to prison because, you know, they didn't have a job and they did something that they it was probably to support their habit or support their families, you know, and they got caught. All right. So they didn't have a job. It wasn't job ready then. So you go into prison, you stay in prison one week, one year, one hundred and sixteen years. You're definitely not job ready. Things change. So my job as coordinator, I have to take them through HRD, human resource development classes, you know what I mean, making them more marketable, more, more employable, such as uh, uh, communication skills, resume writing, you know what I mean, uh, uh, mock interview skills, uh, the whole nine to get them prepared to meet their employers. You see, what we call it pre-employment work sessions, you know, and, and we take them through this and then we connect them to employers or either if they're in the still not ready, we connect them to counseling because a lot of the brothers and sisters that come back out, man, need some type of mental counseling, man. Jesse said something very interesting here. You have to make returning citizens marketable to employers when the thing that they will see them as is an ex-felon. He's now working on both sides of this, pairing one group with new skills while preparing employers to actually opening their hearts and mind to see beyond this. How does Jesse prepare employers for receiving these new workers? Yep, yep, very small, but at the same time, people if people have a given nature in general, right? All right, so what, what I do, I sell the human. You know, I don't, I don't sell them on him, um, uh, uh, having come, having committed his crime, having done his time and come back out. I feel the redemptive quality of humanity. Jesse's work leads him to restructuring the pre-arrest diversion program in Fayetteville, working with the governor to shift the focus from opioids to the crack epidemic in his own community. We discussed how many of these programs bypass former and current crack victims and how the work is uniquely cut out for him because he knows the nuances of this broken system. In my community, now I am I am a law enforcement assistant diversion peer support specialist lead. Uh, I'm sure that you've heard of that term. It's a pre-arrest diversion program for people that are affected and hung up on opioids. And when 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 Fayetteville um, started their lead program, there was four other lead programs in the United States of America. Fayetteville and North Carolina was the first city and the first state in the South to even think about doing this year before last. All right. So now, even with the lead program, we had to go back and restructure our mission and purpose because it was focusing on opioids. In my community, 
the epidemic, when I say my community, my black and brown community, the epidemic is not opioids, it's crack. And so I had to talk to the governor and speak these same words to the attorney general, Justin, and to our lead staff, which makes up Fayetteville Police Department. If we're going to do and be effective, that's the reason why we're doing what we're doing now, is because little white kids, preferably little white girls are ODing, and now it's a public health issue, it's a public health crisis. And so if you're going to decriminalize certain things, right, you need to decriminalize it all. You see, it's a public health issue, a public health crisis in my neighborhood been that way with this crack thing. But now since these little white girls and stuff is ODing, all of a sudden now we're going to do something about it. We ain't going to lock them up. We're going to give them some help and give them some money, you know, and, and open up some, some treatment centers to help them. You know, well, why can't we do the same thing with people on crack? They say, listen, listen. They tell me in the face, yeah, Garner, we're going to straighten it out. We do it. And they try to implement, they, they put things on policies and papers, right? But there's no enforcement. You see, there's no enforcement. Well, there was enforcement on one side because the yeah, opioid epidemic actually got, you know, what is OD pre prevention drugs on the street fairly quickly and set up is the, the I think the, the drug is called Noxalon. Noxin, Noxin, Naloxin. Naloxin. Naloxin, yeah. Yeah, the, they they got naloxin on the streets fairly quickly to yeah. ensure that people not only had access to it and people were trained on it, but there were free medical, exp free medical services that. that you can, you can provide. How did you help, how did you help them decriminalize crack and provide the same level of resources to them? This opioid epidemic had gotten a lot of prevention drugs onto the street fairly quickly. Narcan and other drugs flooded the streets and the laws and policies were put in place to save folks instead of throwing them in jail. So how did Jesse get the same treatment for crack users and made it, for lack of a better term, decriminalized? Well, they, 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 well is it written in law, it's not written in law. It's still underground, you know, in certain cities, man, you know, like here in Fayetteville, right, uh, because I'm connected to law enforcement uh, and I, and I, you know, I do sessions and education sessions with them and uh, I have them now looking at people that use crack different. You know, it's not a, they haven't decriminalized the law, but our good Samaritan law, our good Samaritan law, outlined it as substance instead of just opioids, right? If if a person uh that's in our syringe exchange program uh or get uh, or uh, first responders come upon one that has OD and he has crack and stuff crack pipes and stuff like that in their possession, right? They can't be uh prosecuted for it. You know, they can arrest them but they can't be prosecuted for it according to the Good Samaritan law. That's how they decriminalized it. They went back and reworded the Good Samaritan Law where it wouldn't be just opioids and substance. The Good Samaritan Law, which has been around for decades, at least the 1980s, is a universal law in intention, but one that varies in application from state to state. It basically is intended as a law that's giving permission to everyday citizens like us to be able to intervene in emergency or crisis situations when someone who might be an expert or authority isn't present to intervene. But the reality is not every state or situation has a Good Samaritan law that holds people or regular well-intentioned citizens harmless. Some situations now have a more narrow definitions, putting a finer point on everything from medical care to emergency care to intentions and outcomes of those intentions. As the application has changed, the line on potential litigation and incarceration has also changed too. The legal system has tried to define what situations are, who can intervene, if it was warranted, and could it have been handled differently? 
All of which brings us back to what Jesse is talking about. You see, the application of the Good Samaritan law in his state has legal and cultural implications. And changing how people see the value of helping people who are ODing on crack, likely black or brown, as much as they see the value of helping someone ODing on opioids, likely white, has huge ramifications for lending love and support in everyday society. It's, it's working, man, but, you know, black people have a distrust, man, rightfully so, of law enforcement, man, you know? And so we don't have that many participants, African-American participants, man, you know, in the program because of the mistreatment and the mistrust. You understand what I'm saying? But it, it's growing, you know, it's growing, it's coming, it's a slow process. So what should we be advocating for when it comes to creating the same level of equal treatment, not just through the, through the law and through the medical services? And I, and, I, and I wanna talk about that through the lens of, we have actually destroyed a generations of family with police targeting and maximum minimums. And there are people who are sitting in jail now who are serving long sentences for non-violent crimes that are related to this. Where do you go in and actually say in a complex issues that is, is at the intersection of restoring families, reducing sentences, and actually supplying people with the mental and the health services, how do you even get started? So what should we be advocating for when it comes to the same level of treatment through the law and medical services? We have destroyed generations of families with police targeting and mandatory minimum sentences. How do you frame those complex issues and get started on the work that needs to be done? Well, you you don't, man. What you do, because, um, because of the systemic factor that you just spoke about and spoke on, man, what you do, you try to grab that generation that's that's coming up, you know, that they've already targeted, you know, for 2025 and for 2035 and 2050, that they have already set uh, uh, goals and strategies and laws in place to trap them up. You you go into the schools, you know, and you begin to, you know, do uh, uh, a prevention and suppression and education seminars and and, 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 and events, man, you know, and then you begin to replace, you begin to replace the allure of the allure for fast money and drugs with, with boys and girls clubs and community events to strengthen that community, you see, to strengthen those that, that are within that community, you know, and you begin to show them, you know, different cultures, like different ways and different lifestyles, man, people, how people live, and you begin to educate them with literary arts, man. You know, and but you can't you don't have to right now. There is no way that you could talk to an individual my age or 20 years younger than me that has had has an encounter with the law and tell them, listen, man, you know, your life is going to be set. You're going to be all right. Look at you like you're a fool, man, because they know that if I don't have any, an entrepreneurial spirit to create, you know, make myself become economically empowered, you know, the ability to earn a wage then I'm going to have to end up doing one of two things. I'm going to end up selling drugs or robbing to get some money. You see what I'm saying? And so, like, you don't worry about them right now. Say it that that way. But our focus should be on those that, man, are coming out of their mother's womb, those that are in elementary schools, man. You see, so that we can change this thing for society and and this culture shift that has already been perpetrated against our folks, man, for so long. There's a way to work at all levels of the system simultaneously to start thinking about how we change our policies. I agree with Jesse that we must start at the bottom and reclassify how we and others work in our own community. It's also important to know that as policies change, it is up to the voices in our community to make sure we're not left behind. For the example of legalizing marijuana, we cannot legalize and open doors for some people to sell this product legally and still criminalize at the same rate black folks and negate the lives already tossed away for it. Man, listen, you, you, you talked about community leaders. Every community has a plan. You know, a five-year, 10-year, 25-year plan. 
And regardless of whatever you do, nothing is going to, whatever political leaders change, you know, Democrat, Republican, you know what I mean, bipartisan, community leaders change, right? One thing that does not change is that plan for that city or that community. I found that out, and I say this in a very real sense, man. In um, early 2000, uh, I became privileged to a 2015 uh, planner in early 2000. And this is a city planner? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, like, dang, they get ready to tear up my community. So I began going around into the African-American community telling them what was getting ready to come down the pipe. Target African-Americans, this, that's what they were doing. They were pulling them out of communities and pushing them into one section of the city. You know, that's, that's exactly what they've done. That's what they've done here in Fedville. You know, and they know, and I tell them all the time. You know, so I began telling the community this. And I'm like, they're getting ready to, you know, move you out of these projects and rebuild the projects, but you can't afford them, you know? But they're having these these information sessions in the community, around the community, telling them, yeah, 80% of y'all will be able to return back to your community. Not with what you got coming down the pipe, they won't be able to, you know? And so, and I told them this, and this is what had happened. They came in with the Hope Six project, man, in like three or four phases. Tore down, built, built projects that still look like projects, you know, but can't nobody afford them because everybody that was in there was on fixed income, you know. And and uh, so and they pushed everybody, man, to what we would classify as uh, northeastern Fayetteville. It should surprise very few of us who live in cities and might also identify as non-white or outside middle class that there's an incentive to reclassify people's identities, situations, rights, and even resources. Part of what aids the turmoil associated with these situations, like gentrification, is the idea that it's not just about shifting housing stock and losing local stores and culture, it's also about how policies and practices change around these situations. Keeping the under-resourced black and brown and other marginalized communities away from changing circumstances diminishes our opportunities to be afforded equal status in society. It all comes down to how we find new ways to destroy the humanity and others that we don't see having cultural, financial, or political value. Aggressively reclaiming cities, communities, employment, and the like all come into play in situations like the drug epidemic where the attitude has continually changed as political forces have too. Who is Jesse Gardner today? I, at times, have put this on the end of a bio. I'm a voice for the silent. And simply means that I get my joy when I see the silent become vocal by empowering their life through change, through education, through jobs, through becoming wage earners. I just see myself as Jesse Garner. No big person, just Jesse Garner. At times in my life, I, I laugh at my life because I'd be surrounded by, you know, dignitaries and people and stuff, and they'd be asking me questions. Like, Pastor Don, what do you think about this? I'm like, damn, you know, a few years ago they were chasing me. You know, now they're calling me, asking me to come and talk to them. I'm like, you know, it's, it's just crazy, man. So, but I don't, I don't see myself as anyone special. I just see myself as a person that has experienced, you know, both sides of the wall, man. You know, Jesse has made a complete transformation in his life going from someone that's regressed and repressed in his community to rejuvenating and advocating for it. His journey included seeing the criminal justice systems work from the inside and the outside. 
and created something that we might not expect for most people with Jesse's story. Instead of resentment, it created empathy. And it was the kind of empathy that turned itself into advocacy, seeing others that had been abused by the system inspired him to do and be better than what he's been. For things like criminal justice reform to take hold, we need to value and uplift the humanity of people with user experience, a line of sight into what it means to be a part of these systems and to have tried and sometimes failed to get out of them. But there's more. A part of this also means that we have to be honest about our capacity and desire for forgiveness. If we are to give space and power to the Jessies out there, we have to willingly exercise and raise the collective standard of forgiving those that have committed crimes and have been convicted and served time because of it. This ability to constantly erase people's humanity is part of a design around what we do to limit people's ability to live full lives. Our redemption stories often rely on people being defined at their worst and then making them think that their only path forward is a series of actions to prove their worthiness. Sometimes these situations are possible, but often what we see is that people are stigmatized by their poor choices, and as a result, should only be handled that way forevermore. And here's the undergirding perception. Those who use drugs, engage in theft or prostitution have character flaws and proves that some people just can't be saved no matter who and what they are. And so it unfortunately takes people like Jesse to prove that society is better than these choices, that there are people, and all of us really, that are worth more than what the judgment of others mean or what decisions we've made over the course of our lives. What it means for the people that he advocates for is not only a reflection of his embracement of their humanity, but he is too. And this is the direction of the promised land. I'm your host, Antonio Saunders.